0: Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we get the inside take from actors, artists, and creators on their work, career, and the things they obsess about. I'm your host, Connie Guillermo. Author Soman Chainani has spent the last decade working on his young adult book series, The School for Good and Evil. He turned in the last and seventh book in March 2020 and was ready to take the rest of the year off to relax and head out on new adventures. But then COVID happened, and so he spent most of 2020 pretty much indoors. What did he do? He wrote a new book called Beasts and Beauty Dangerous Tales, which has just been released. Chainani tells me there's a common thread to all his writing. He thinks of his fairy tales as survival guides to life, and he wants you to look at the heroes and villains in a completely different, non-Disney way. I'd like to just start by asking you The past year and a half have been a very odd time for all of us to live through. Some people have learned how to bake breads or destroy sourdough starters. You've been writing and working on uh, some of your uh, offshoot of your writing projects. As we know, there's a a film, a Netflix actually film that is going to be based on your books. But I'm just curious what have you learned about yourself in the past year and a half while we've been in this strange new world?
1: You know, it's funny because it coincided with me finishing the School for Good and Evil series, which I've been working on for 10 years. And so last year was supposed to be my year of like rest and relaxation, where I sort of went on adventures and rediscovered life in a new way and sort of found a completely new headspace. And then I was trapped in a room for five or six months, you know? And so I think what i learned about myself is that you're able to reset and refresh without changing your external surroundings that you can do it entirely from within. And I know that sounds kind of like, you know, a little woo-woo, but it's possible if you're willing to, you know, actually sort of examine yourself that deeply. And so I think that was, you know, really, to me, in a lot of ways, it was the most important year of my life. I wouldn't say it was definitely the best year, because I think for everyone, it, it ranks among the worst, but it was one of the most significant years.
0: And can I ask why? What what did you learn about yourself? Other than you can change from within, how did you change?
1: <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, I just slowed down. And I think I'd gotten into, you know, the habit of next project, next project. And I hadn't actually, you know, especially with a series, because you're writing book after book after book, um, to be able to sort of close that chapter and look at all of it and be like, how have I changed? And what stories do I want to tell now? Because for the first time, it felt like I had more agency, because I had always developed the School for the Evil as a sixth book, uh, you know, seven to eight year long project, but now there was empty space. And so I sort of had to take stock of my own strengths and weaknesses, you know, issues I wanted to explore, even so much as I had to think about where certain things in the School for Good and Evil came from. Did they come from a place of anger? Was that resolved? Were there issues that were still lingering? I had to sort of rid myself of the residue of that series, because otherwise I would spend the rest of my life writing the same book again and again and again.
0: Well, now I'm gonna ask you to rewind and let people know a little bit about The School (laughs) of Good and Evil. It it is a six part series, as you mentioned. And uh, you've talked about this extensively, but to our readers who may be new, um, it came about, I think, fair to say in reaction to your disenchantment, or your frustration with how Disney tells fairy tales. Why don't you tell people who have never heard of the series, what's it about from your perspective?
1: You know, for me, I grew up with Disney fairy tales almost exclusively. You know, in our house, that was what we had. So I must have seen every movie 100, 120 times. And so my entire viewpoint of good and evil is shaped by Disney. And I, I would honestly say I think most people of my generation and above have their morality shaped by Disney, which is why I'm not surprised that our politics is so polarized. When you have those labels of good and evil, it means that one side has to live and one side has to die, and you're not going to make any accommodations for either. And so when I went back to the um, original fairy tales in college, I was lucky enough to end up by accident in this fairy tale seminar taught by um, Maria Tatar at Harvard, who uh, is the sort of foremost fairy tale expert. You know, by luck, I sort of learned of the original stories and how much sort of room for ambiguity and good and grayness and in the spectrum between good and evil there is and how much the the original stories trusted kids to make their own decisions, you know, and I started to realize that that's what was robbed from our culture and from my childhood. And what would it be like to give a series that was like a Game of Thrones for kids, where I didn't label who the good guy was and who the bad guy was, and it could change at any point in time, and your favorite character could die at any point. And it would be like reading Harry Potter, where Harry and Voldemort get equal screen time and equal page time. And it's up to you instinctively as to who you root for, you know. And that's really where the School for Good and Evil came from, was this idea that we brand the evil kids, the evil kids, the bad kids, without understanding who they are and and what they're about and understanding that we all have a, a different way of approaching life.
0: You call them evers and nevers, evers being the good folks and nevers being the bad ones. And I'm curious how you ended up with that and why you didn't flip it.
1: It's so interesting because when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, what is the difference between when we identify as someone as good and someone as evil, especially in a fairy tale? Usually the good guy, we always think is fighting for love, right? And the evil guy is fighting for money or power, but basically power in some form. So it's that contrast between love and power. And to me, calling them the Evers represented this idea of ever after, that love could somehow preserve and transcend their soul. And I just did a—I just rewrote The Little Mermaid um, in my new book, *Beast and Beauty, which is really about this, this idea that, that we believe love can somehow make us bigger than human and make us last forever. And the Nevers basically are like, no, that doesn't happen. We, we are born and we die. And in the meantime, between birth and death, the best way to transcend your soul and your life is to acquire power, right? Because life is ephemeral. So give me all the power and money and cash to make my life as good as possible. And that's it. And it's a difference in philosophy. And I think if you went down Fifth Avenue and you went from one person to the other and said, what do you care more about, love or power? You'd get 50-50 because that's what I always believe. I feel like we divide 50-50 into evers and nevers. And that's what I've seen in the eight years of writing the series, that it's split. That's the way our world is. Half of us skew one way, half skew the other. And to brand one side as a side that that should live and one side as a side that should die and one as good and one as evil is gonna lead to exactly the mess that we're in right now.
0: Well, uh, you've said that, and I love this line, that a fairy tale is meant to be a survival guide to life. A warning of all the dangers one faces by moving out of childhood and into an unprotected world. Um, Your books have themes, boys and girls, good and evil. So can you talk about that philosophy of your survival guide to life and how it manifests in this series?
1: That's what the original fairy tales were about, the grim stories, because when you were 13, you were essentially an adult back then. There was no such thing as an adolescence. We invented adolescence much later. So at 13, you were expected to get a job. You were supposed to get married pretty soon after. And so, you know, those fairy tales is what taught them how to survive, how to live. And so, you know, what I wanted to do is, is find a way to make that relevant for kids today. What would a survival guide for life today look like? And that's what every book and every fairy tale I write Sort of operates from and so in the school for good and evil series every book sort of started with a binary that we think we understand so book one was about good and evil book two was about boys and girls book three was about young and old and so these words that you know we think are polar opposites in the same way that we think good and bad are um, and how to explore the gray area between them right so in book two for instance when i'm looking at boys and girls um i just introduce a potion uh that lets you excre- change your gender at will right so all of a sudden, if there's a potion sitting on your desk that can turn you into a girl for a day, obviously every boy in the world is going to take it just to see, right? And so once you start experimenting and giving people the chance to mess with their identity and experience life from the opposite perspective, all hell is going to break loose, but in a way that's going to ultimately lead to a more positive reconstruction of the world. you know? So um, that's what I'm after, is the mischief making that is gone from our current way of storytelling because when you have the good guy and the evil guy and they're not allowed to really play in each other's spaces, then you know, you're know you you're separating perspective too much.
0: Uh, one of the other things you've said about the series is that when you were looking back at the history of, of all your VHS tapes, I'm sure from Disney, not as many female villains as you thought we should have. And it's funny because when I was growing up, obviously seeing a lot of the same movies, I think I know the complete soundtrack to Beauty and the Beast by heart because my daughter just played it on, you know, uh, over and over and over again. But, um, I, you know, I did see some women villi- villains, but tell me a little bit about what your perspective is on that, why the world needed some more villain S's or.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think if you look at the Disney canon, there's 48 animated movies, or there was last time when I looked, and there were seven females as villains. But those seven are really the only ones we remember right? Maleficent, Cruella, you know, the Wicked Queen from Snow White, you know, these are um, the one that that sort of lodge in our imagination forever, you know? And even if you look at the, the, the male villains we remember, Scar, Jafar, they're sort of drawn with sort of a slinky femininity to them on purpose, you know? So I think there's something in that that I always felt was a more alluring and more impactful villain. And a lot of what I did in college was to try to understand why, what made a a female villain so much more sort of compelling. And what I sort of came upon is that if you look at the Grimm stories, the sort of locus of what scares children the most is an unmaternal mother, a mother who does not like being a mother, a mother who actually hates having children. And it strikes the deepest fear in every child, even if they don't know how to express it. And I felt like, that's where you can find a lot of just sort of deep and interesting kind of subconscious thematic material to work with. And a lot of my work is about that.
0: And What about your male villains? Let's talk about them then. Let's give them equal time. <laughs> How
1: do you approach them? I think male villains to me, the key is to not Right, So often what happens with male villains is we bondify them, meaning like it's a James Bond villain where we give them as much nuclear ammunition as possible and it's whoever comes in with the biggest guns with, right? So that's why female villains tend to be more interesting because female villains don't come in with the sort of nuclear submarine, right? They, they operate with a lot more cleverness and manipulation and all the sort of things that they can do that doesn't involve just brute force and strength. And so to me, a, a good male villain operates from that place, right? You look at The Lion King, the reason Scar is so memorable is Scar is so weak, right? Scar cannot fight. He has to wait until Mufasa has a kid so that he can use the kid against Mufasa because he can't take Mufasa on, which is funny because then at the end of the movie, Disney cheats because they don't know how to get Simba to beat Scar since Simba is so useless and Scar is so smart and clever. So they somehow engineer a fight. Up until that point, Scar was compelling because Scar doesn't fight he gets other people to fight for him, the hyenas, you know, um, Simba, etc.
0: So the series is about to be made into this uh, Netflix feature film with uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Michelle Yao, Charlize Theron, mm-hmm. Carrie Washington, really a very impressive cast mm-hmm. and uh, directed by Paul Feig, who's done a lot of really notable movies. You worked and wrote the um, screenplay, correct?
1: I did the first two drafts. So when it was over at Universal first and I worked on it then, Um, and then, you know, I think we had uh, went through the usual studio process there and it took a while for it to get to Netflix. Um, But luckily by the time it got to Netflix, you know, years of sort of pounding out the story meant that we had solved taking a very long, complicated mythology in the book and distilling it to a movie that would work for all audiences, adults included, because we wanted to create that sort of like true kind of Princess Bride, Harry Potter, full four quadrant experience for everybody. And so by the time Paul came on, we were able to move quite fast because um, the script had gone through the process and ended up in, in a really great place. you know. And I think uh, he's been so collaborative and he's just brilliant and the most amazing man. And so um, he just was able to, to get the ship up and going so quickly you know, once, once he committed to it.
0: Is it um, book one or is it an amalgam it's of just, a few books?
1: It's just book one, I think, you know, ideally Netflix would like to make at least three of them because the way the um, series is divided, it's in two trilogies. So there's the school years and then the Camelot years. Mm-hmm. And so I know that they would definitely like to ideally make three, but it depends on how that first one goes
0: so I imagine you've uh maybe seen some of the rushes or have a whole sense of what that thing is and so I'm going to ask you the classic question is the book better
1: you know what's crazy is I spent a month on set and all my friends who had had books made into movies were like it's the most uncomfortable experience because it's not what you have in your head like you know just sort of warning me and I just I don't know, but I just feel like Paul and I share the same, like playing wavelengths and he just understood it. And so I felt like, sure, we made a ton of changes to the book in order to make it a cinematic experience and to distill and to, to sort of bring up certain notes and bring, you know, others into more focus, but this is as faithful sort of a representation I can imagine. So, um, At the same time, they're two completely different mediums. So my hope is that the movie has its own life and then the book continues to be the book, you know? Um, And it's a version of the story and I hope that everybody will read the book and have their own version in their heads.
0: Well, I guess we'll see. I mean, I'm a big fan of The Princess Bride and I think it's a brilliant book, but I also love the movie adaptation, which is different. The 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 book is darker.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what we hope. I think Princess Bride was sort of our, our guiding light in a lot of ways. The idea that, you know, as a book, it can have this big sort of intense mythology, you know, because by the time you get to the end of book six of School for Good Evil, you're in sort of Game of Thrones land in terms of complexity. There's 150 characters, there's 70 plot lines, there's lots of stuff going on. Um, but in a movie, you can, you can play with t- visual tone, you know, and all these things. So my hope is that they, they exist on two parallel tracks.
0: I wanna talk about your new project, which is um, an upending, because I'm not gonna say retelling, but because you're really upending some of the classic fairy tales. You you mentioned the Brothers Grimm, but Hans Christian Andersen, Little Mermaid, um, Peter Pan, Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, Hansel Gretel. And again, I am reading something that you have said about it, which is that there was a lot of resentment (laughs) against these old classics. With your first series, you created a new
1: fairy tale,
0: but here now you're retelling. And why was it important for you to retell?
1: I think for me, it's, I only get excited about working on something when it's an impossible challenge. So School for the Naval came out of, could I do a school of fantasy only whatever, eight or nine years after Harry Potter came out and not have it compared to Harry Potter, right? That was the challenge I set myself. and not have anyone even mention Harry Potter because it was gonna be so different. With this one, I felt like I was in lockdown and I just felt like the world had turned upside down. And I really had started to believe in this fact that we had lost touch with our souls because we hadn't grown up with the right orientation of what good and evil was, me included. And I thought, why not just blow up the fairy tales and we tell them as if I was the brother's Grimm in the 1700s and I could see what the world looked like now. And I just was starting from scratch. And that felt like a completely egomaniacal, insane ambition, right? To redo the fairy tales, you know, um, completely. But it gave me, you know, the fodder to um, go for it, you know, and to really, really have something to chew on during the pandemic.
0: So this book called "Beast and Beauty, Dangerous Tales is coming out in a month or so. And 12 stories, Red Riding Hood, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Rapunzel, Jack and the Beanstalk, Hansel and Battle, Beauty and the Beast, Bluebeard, Cinderella, Little Mermaid, Skin, Peter Pan. Which one ticked you off the most?
1: I think Snow White. And you can see it in the way that I redid I, the story, because I basically make it about the only Black girl in the kingdom whose mother names her Snow White almost as a barb, as like a a, a joke's the wrong word, but like a taunt because it's, it's a kingdom that's 100% white, except for this one queen who the prince marries. Um, and so he, she named her daughter Snow White, uh, in a very ironic twist. And so that, that to me was, came from a place of anger and resentment almost, you know? Um, and I think every story had that seed in, in some kind of relationship or something that I wanted to address. Red Riding Hood is about uh, a town where um, the most beautiful girl uh, is marked for sacrifice every spring. So the, the, these wolves who are essentially a gang of boys and kind of the ultimate Me Too story identify the most beautiful girl that they feel they are entitled to kill, You know, which is a metaphor for many things in our world. Um, you know, Sleeping Beauty is about sort of the gay awakening experience and sort of the the terror that comes with it and the thrill that comes with it. You know, Bluebeard has really an implicit theme of child trafficking. So, you know, it's looking into these kind of deep dark themes that Disney obviously would never want to play with, but things that are in sort of every kid's subconscious and imagination: the unmaternal mother, you know, the the father who who has sort of a scary violent edge, like all these sorts of things. So. It was the most me thing I've ever written. And, you know, I was just super proud of it.
0: I think it's interesting. You wrote this over the past year and Snow White, which is the first one I read, maybe because that was the sequence in which you've uh, they're listed in the book. But you wrote that at a time when the country was grappling with uh, Black Lives Matter. And obviously that must have been in front of mind or maybe not, I don't know.
1: Absolutely, I wrote it that week. I wrote it that week. And I think you can feel it in the story because what I realized is that growing up non-white myself, that the culture sometimes doesn't have an understanding of what it is like to not be white. And so to tell the story where, you know, you have to grow up without the conventional mirrors um, of beauty and having to find it for yourself and to be your own magic mirror I thought would be an interesting challenge to make the girl the only black girl in the kingdom, meaning she has no reflections and her mother is dead. And the only thing telling her she's beautiful is the queen's magic mirror, the queen who wants her rival dead. It just set up too delicious a triangle um, to not really have a good time exploring.
0: All right, the name of this podcast is called I'm So Obsessed. And so I need to ask you someone, what are you obsessed with?
1: You know, there are a few things I would say. I just finished watching The White Lotus on um, HBO, which totally captivated me because I had no idea where anything was going. And I, I think I'm obsessed by stories that are surprising, um, that shock me uh, and are still entertaining. Um, there is a book by Tom O'Neill called Chaos, which revisits the Manson uh, trial and sort of represents it um for the truth that is incredible and, and I love. There's a book about Roger Federer that I got an early copy of called The Master by uh Christopher Clary that I also love because I'm a Roger Federer obsessive. And now that his career is coming to an end, I feel like my life to some extent, there's a part of my life that's coming to an end because I grew up with him, he was my idol. Uh, for as long as I've been around, tennis is probably my biggest obsession of all. So um, that this book somehow kept me company as I'm watching him, you know, slowly, slowly bring his career to an end. And um, you know, maybe I would say last but not least, my favorite show that I've rewatched a few times uh, on Netflix is Indian Matchmaking, because I think from a larger perspective. It presents taking an old world institution, uh, arranged marriages, which we make fun of. And yet it worked for hundreds of years and continues to work and it brings it into a new age. And it's sort of a reminder that in this new sort of newfangled tech world, where we're always focused on the new, 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 sometimes the old traditions uh, were there for a reason and we should look back at them.
0: Wait, so you're, you support arranged marriages? Is that what you're saying?
1: No, I, think, <laughs> I think the philosophy behind it Uh, is something to look at and I think what the show does is take some of the principles of it and reintroduces them to dating right by using a matchmaker by using a third party and sure dating apps do that but there's something about using the idea of introductions um, that makes that show so incredibly compelling.
0: Well it Uh, introduces the human curator versus an app which does it via algorithm.
1: And also, not just the human curator, the families get involved, right? So um, (laughs) the idea is that that the families are talking to the curator, the families are talking to each other, and it's all of a sudden, you know, you're starting to think to yourself, like, no wonder it worked, because not only did you have the two people meeting each other to see if they liked each other, um, you know, but also you had the families meeting each other. And families are going to only do what's best for their kids, right? So if you have two families, there is insurance policy trying to make sure that their kids get the best possible match, and they agree, and then the two kids like each other, no matter, no wonder all those marriages lasted. You know for so long so well
0: that that's actually a surprising answer because it takes the chaos out of life doesn't it
1: <laughs> I, i'm constantly joking i'm like if they do a season two they should have me out but i don't know <laughs> my family might get, throw me off the throw me off the bridge but who knows
0: i want to ask you about some of your favorite books and uh you listed them out again in various interviews and it is a very um, odd collection. And you uh, you had said, try to make sense of that list. I can't make sense of it. So I'm going to mention some of them. Yes. Anti-Mame by Patrick Dennis. The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollingshurst. The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith. You also mentioned Anne Rice's Interview with a Vampire. Is there a connective thread to what you uh, think are your favorite
1: books? Absolutely. I, anything? <laughs> I think they're all the same book. I think they're all about someone who breaks the rules um, in order to do what they think is right. Every book I love is about uh, a rule breaker who, who doesn't want to live by rules that they didn't make. You know, it's probably why I was a Madonna obsessive growing up, because I just felt like she went around throwing bombs at every taboo and, and rule that we, you know, believed in at the time until she sort of ran out of them. Um, and so I think that's what, know i loved and even the stuff i love today anytime i sort of come across a a book where i feel like someone is violating what we believe to be true a contrarian who then actually proves their point um i find myself paying attention and more alert to it
0: you mentioned that you were obsessed with 90s madonna uh you also mentioned stanley kubrick Mm. can i ask why
1: you know it's funny because. But now that I'm saying that, so on the one hand, this is what I think sort of is the the conflict at the core of my soul to some extent. I love renegades and I love breaking rules and I love the chaos of um, reinvention. At the same time, I love artists who are extraordinarily structured and disciplined and ordered, right? Like Kubrick, everything is so precise and meticulous, you know? and I think that's what I'm like as an artist is using structure, imposing structure on myself in order to give the chaos more meaning. So I think those two things, and it's why I think Madonna and Kubrick are themselves kind of interesting tentpoles for what I find uh, compelling entertainment.
0: Um, seen it as a site that looks at the world through the lens of tech. And I wonder if you were to write a fairy tale about tech, what might it be about?
1: It's interesting. I think, you know, to me, I think beauty has been so corrupted by tech. You know, like I always joke that I won't date anybody who follows hot people on Instagram because once they do, they lose touch with the weight of the natural human. Like everything is retouched and everything is so two-dimensional and you, your brain starts to be attracted to this dopamine flush of what it thinks beauty is, a facsimile of beauty, but loses touch with nature, you know? And I think that's what the fairy tale is, that somehow we have fallen in love with this sort of ready player one simulation of the world that's on our phones and forgotten the actual world. Do you know what I mean?
0: It, it reminds me of an episode of The Twilight Zone where this woman who is quite beautiful wants to have her face rearranged because that beauty is not the norm, and and the rest of the world kind of looks, you know, uh, they have snouts, they more resemble pigs, and she has to be sent off <laughs> to a, uh, you know, a, a commune or you know, isolation. I love because... that
1: episode. Yes, I've seen that episode, and it's it's one of my favorites. There's another great. Uh, Ted Chang story about this. I think it's called Super Beauty in its first book, um, Stories of Our Lives. It's absolutely brilliant if anybody wants to, to read more about um, how beauty is corrupting us.
0: Do you have a favorite piece of tech?
1: I have a sensate, which is my new favorite thing. And it's this little vibrating egg shaped thing that you put on your sternum uh, and it calms you down. It's like a This strange self soothing thing that can like get you that can de-stress you in 10 minutes. Um, And uh, I give one as a gift to everybody for their birthday. It's like my go-to gift and anybody I give it to within weeks is like it's my best friend. Like they like it's it's become everybody's safety blanket.
0: So the opposite of a Tamagotchi, you don't have to feed it. It takes care of you. Okay. Least favorite favorite piece of tech
1: good question you know i just think it's those social media apps honestly i think if we if you got rid of instagram and facebook and twitter i just think this world would run in a different way i know it's ridiculous because i use it so much for work and stuff like that but i don't know every time i go on it i can feel myself contracting
0: I mean, fair enough, there are lots of problems in the world thanks to social media or no thanks to social media. If you could have a piece of tech that was created just for you, what would it be?
1: I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, I think we would all benefit from a mirror that showed us objectively what we look like and avoided presenting us with our self image. Because usually when we look in a mirror we see what we think we see right. And if there was a way to be able to see ourselves as we actually are, that's so heavy, but, and I know it can never be invented, but I guess that's what makes it, makes it something to aspire to.
0: Thank you so much for your time today. And looking forward to seeing both the Netflix uh, version of School of Good and Evil and your new collection of fairy tales, which are coming out next
1: month. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks again to Soman Chainani for talking with me and thank you for listening. We hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, be safe.